0: Well, as we said a second ago, today we have the honor of gathering together as the gathered body of Jesus Christ to partake in the Lord's Supper and to commemorate and remember the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Before we do so, we need as a church body to also open up our Bibles and be fed from the bread of life this morning. And so I'm going to invite you, if you have a copy of God's Word, to open up to Paul's First letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. Whenever we gather together to partake of the Lord's Supper, I'm reminded of a song that was written many years ago by one of my favorite artists of all time, a man by the name of Rich Mullins. Many of you have known Rich and his songs. He wrote a song many years ago for a communion celebration at a cathedral that was called Peace. And in that song, he writes these words, which I think, to me, most adequately convey what happens whenever the church comes together to celebrate communion. Because while we are here, we are hundreds of individual believers from different backgrounds, different, different experiences with the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of us, we've been... Christians for decades. For others, we we are relatively new Christians. For some of us in here, we're not Christians yet, and we're we're on a journey towards Christ. And and while many of us in here have been members of Central Park Baptist Church for a long time and 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 know much about each other, the reality of it is is that that many of us are still strangers to one another about who we really are. Rich Mullins, understanding that, wrote these words about. This act he says though we're strangers still I love you. I love you more than your mask. And you know you have to trust this to be true and I I know that's much to ask. But lay down your fears. Come and join this feast. He has called us here, you and me. And may peace rain down from heaven like little pieces of the sky. Little keepers of the promise falling on these souls, this drought has dried. In His blood and in His body, in this bread and in this wine, peace to you, the peace of Christ to you. Those words have always meant a lot to me whenever I think about coming together to celebrate the Lord's Supper or communion. I don't know if you grew up in a church tradition which gave... Much teaching on the Lord's Supper or communion. I don't remember a lot of it in my church tradition growing up. But I wasn't always paying attention in church when I was young either. So it could have been that they talked about it a good bit and I just wasn't listening. What I do remember is that every once in a while we would come to church and, and we would have a table very similar to the one in front of me. And it would be covered with a tablecloth. And underneath there would be these trays, very similar to the ones that we have here. And in those trays, they would have these small powdery crackers and these small little plastic cups with grape juice, and they would pass those around, and we would take those. And I like grape juice, so I always thought that was pretty cool that I got to come to church and drink some grape juice. And they would give some instructions, and they would pass those things by, and and we would eat of them and, and pray, and, and we would call that the Lord's Supper. And growing up in the church, while I participated in the Lord's Supper dozens and dozens and dozens of times, I don't think I actually understood the spiritual importance of what was growing up, going on. And part of that is what I was talking about a second ago, is this idea of, of customs and traditions and, and routines, you know, routines and traditions are not bad things. They can be very, very, very good things, but sometimes when routines just become routine, then we go through the motions without ever actually thinking about what it is that we're doing and why we do it. In our particular tradition here at the church, we, we celebrate the Lord's Supper right now once a quarter. We, we, we pick at least four times out of the year that we, we intentionally schedule as the church that we stop for a moment to engage in this ordinance. And and let me be clear, this is what we call an ordinance in our church tradition. It's not a sacrament. We believe that, that it is a means of grace that the Lord Jesus has given us in which we celebrate God's grace, but we don't by any means believe that by partaking these elements, we are receiving God's grace, that we are somehow or another God is imparting That grace through these elements but we do believe these to be an act that the Lord Jesus gave us that he ordained for us on the night before he was betrayed and crucified uh, that he said to the church this is something that I want you to do and I want you to do from now until the time that I return in remembrance of me and so it's one of those traditions that's been carried on in the church for thousands of years And for many of us, we've just kind of grown up doing it, but not always thinking about why we do what we do. To understand the Lord's Supper and communion, we first need to understand the first century importance of sharing meals together, especially in the Jewish world, because we have lost the art and importance of meals and table fellowship with others in our society today. How many of you grew up in a tradition where your family ate dinner together every single night? Any of you grow up in that tradition? Okay, so many of you have. But many of us didn't. Now, early on when when my family, when I was young, we ate meals most nights together, I would say. I would say in the course of a seven-day week, we probably ate around the dinner table together at least five nights out of the seven. Um, it was very important to my dad. That was a tradition that, that they did, and that was very important in our family. But, but it began to wane as we got to be teenagers like many others uh, in, in our families. For some of us, we, we've never had really a meal together as a family. It's a, it's a struggle for us in our family with work schedules and, and, and lots of things going on. It's a struggle to sit down and actually eat meals together. We've we've kind of lost that art of hospitality and we've lost the art of table fellowship. One of my favorite television shows is is the television show Blue Bloods. Can I get a witness? Anybody like the TV show Blue Bloods? I love Blue Bloods. Um, And you know, if you watch the television show Blue Bloods, one of the central components of that TV show for this Family, the Reagan family, is that they gather together every single show at some point in time. They gather together for Sunday dinner. And it's a tradition that has gone on in that family for, for decades, for generations, that when, when Sunday comes around, we're going to gather together and we're going to eat a meal together. And, and when we do, we, we're going to come from various different experiences throughout the week. Sometimes we might not even like each other very much that day. But when we come to this table, we're going to eat a meal together, and we're not going to argue with one another, and we're not going to fight with one another, and we're going to talk about what unites us, and we're going to talk about what brings us together, rather than what divides us. You see, today, we often, in today's society, eat meals of fast food or heated up chicken nuggets, rather than coming together to celebrate meals. The Bible demonstrates to us the importance of table fellowship throughout Scripture. We see uh, in the life of of Abraham, when when Abraham saw some messengers that had come from God, one of the first things that he did was give instructions to Sarah to prepare a meal for those men to sit down together to eat a meal together. And even in the early church, in Acts chapter 2, verse forty. Two, it tells us that when the early church began, it says that the early believers devoted themselves to the apostles teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. They were devoted in the early church to one another. And this act of, of mutual devotion included breaking bread together. I always thought that was interesting. We we Baptists like to use that as as kind of justification for dinner on the grounds. That's kind of what we like to use that for, right? Yeah, the early church, they broke bread together. But when it's talking about breaking bread together, it's, it's more than just a reference like a church fellowship supper. It, it meant that the early church, it was customary for these new believers in Jesus Christ to gather together in one another's homes. And when they did, it always included a meal together. And I think also when it talks about the breaking of bread in Acts chapter 2, I think it's also referring to the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. I think that that's built into Acts chapter 42, that when they broke bread together, it wasn't just that they they had a meal that everybody partook of, but as part of that, they also remembered the Lord's Supper together. And so because we've often lost the significance of the importance of sharing meals together with one another in our society, I think by extension we've often lost the significance of sharing these elements together as the body of Christ. And so I think it's important for us to pause from time to time from our usual worship routines to remind ourselves of why we come together as a church to partake of the Lord's Supper. To do this, I want us to look at Paul's instruction to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and then I want to just give you four reasons why we need this supper, why we need this feast. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, Paul is instructing the church at Corinth, and he doesn't do so very, very good at first. He doesn't do so very kindly, as you're going to see. He says in verse 17, In the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you must be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, one goes ahead, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. On himself, That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come." We see here Paul giving instructions regarding the Lord's Supper in the middle of uh, quite an explosive and and critical word that he gives to them about some things that are happening in the church. But in that, I want us to see four reasons why as Christians you and I need to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And let's remember that the Lord's Supper is not something that we do individually as Christians. We don't decide we're going to go get some premium crackers and... and a bottle of grape juice and just to have Lord's Supper on our own at our house. It's something that God gave to the church for us to do together. So why do we need it? Well, one, it unites us around the greater purpose of the gospel. One of the reasons why you and I need this feast is because it unites us around the greater purpose of the gospel. It's important for us to understand in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we read these verses almost every time that we gather together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, but often Christians have heard these verses read and don't understand the context about why Paul gives these instructions to the church in Corinth. And the church to which he is giving these instructions is not a New Testament model of faithfulness and virtue. As a matter of fact, the church at Corinth was actually more of a model of what not to do as a church. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul condemns the church because it was marked over personal divisions about who was the best leader to follow. Some said, I follow Paul. Some said, I follow Apollos. Some said, I follow Cephas. And the really spiritual people said, well, I follow Jesus. And, and because there were all these divisions about who was the best leader to emulate and to follow, there was divisions in the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul condemns the church because the church was openly tolerating open sexual sin among some of the church members. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul criticizes the church because there were people in the church who had decided within the fellowship of the church to sue one another in public courts. They were having such disputes in the church that they couldn't even reconcile them as brothers and sisters in Christ, but instead there were church members that were taking other church members to secular public courts and suing one another. And there was continual disruption in the corporate worship of the church and disunity in the church regarding spiritual gifts, specifically what we would call the ecstatic or charismatic gifts of the Spirit. And there were some who claimed to have these gifts and 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and because they had these more ecstatic public gifts of prophecy and knowledge and speaking in tongues, they claimed that they had spiritual, su- spiritual superiority over those who did not have those gifts. And so they would say, well, you know, the Lord has given me the gift of prophecy, and, and they would begin to be very proud about those things rather than understanding what the purpose of spiritual gifts was. And so here in this context... Paul's instructions regarding the Lord's Supper are not given as a commendation of the church, but rather a criticism of the church for their multiple divisions and disunity. Now evidently, the church in Corinth, along with many other churches in the New Testament, would celebrate this this thing called communion, or the Lord's Supper, as part of a greater church-wide feast known as the Agape Feast. And again, we saw in Acts chapter 2 a second ago that it was not uncommon for the church to celebrate meals together. And so what they would do is they would gather together as a church to, to eat a meal in the church. And the church people would gather across all sorts of socioeconomic spectrums. Some people in the church would be wealthy. And capable of bringing lots of food. Other people in the church would be economically challenged and might not be able to bring anything. Or if they could, it would be very little. And the idea was that the church would come together in a public act of common union and share food. And everyone would have equal access to this church meal together. That's what the agape feast was supposed to be. It was to be a, and if you think about the Greek word for agape, the word love, agape means selfless love. It's it's a love that says we come together not to not to be selfish, but to be selfless, to share these things together and to eat together, because there's something very spiritual about the church coming together and, and sharing a meal. Yet in Corinth. Instead of this meal being marked by selfless agape love, it was a continuation of division. Not only that, but, but the people who had a lot of food would bring their food and set it at their table and, and they would just begin to eat their food and, and begin to engage in gluttony while others who didn't have much would sit over there with either nothing to eat or very little. They would even go so far as he commends them for, for drunkenness in Verse 21, there was nothing in this feast in Corinth that resembled the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the testimony of the Corinthian church reminds us of the continual danger of disunity and division in the church. Ideally, we would like to think that the church is a place where everyone loves one another perfectly and there are never any squabbles or divisions, right? But for most of us, our experience would remind us that that is not the case. As a matter of fact, the reality is that many of us have seen some of the best of people and some of the worst of people in church, right? And why is that? Why is the church not the way it should be? Why do when we come together do we tend to have these divisions and disunity? It's because... While the church is made up of the redeemed body of Jesus Christ, of people redeemed by the gospel, we are still human beings and fallen bodies that are prone to sin and selfishness. And the reality is, anytime you put sinful beings in close proximity to one another, sin and the flesh are going to rear their heads. Whenever you put people who are still prone to sin and prone to selfishness in the same close proximity with one another, there's going to be division, there's going to be disunity. Christ knew this very well. That's the reason why before he left his disciples to go to the cross, he instituted this ordinance and commanded us to keep it and remember the gospel when we do. You see, when we come to the table of the Lord's Supper, we do not do so as Christians who have their act together. We do so as fallen sinners in need of a Savior no matter what side of the tracks we live on or no matter what the status of our bank account. When we come together to do what we are about to do in just a second, we don't do so as people who have everything together spiritually. We do so as sinners, great sinners in need of a great Savior. And what divides us is sin, but what unites us is Jesus Christ. Christ. And as we sang a second ago, when we gather together at this table, we also do so as a foreshadowing of another future and greater feast in which we will gather together as people from every tribe, nation, and tongue at the marriage feast of the Lamb. And so when we come together as a church, we come together, first of all, for this supper, and we need it because it unites us around the greater purpose of the gospel. It it, it gets our eyes off of the things that divides us and and instead puts us on the thing that really unites us. Another reason why we need this supper as believers is because it reminds us of Christ's finished work accomplished for us. It reminds us of the finished work of Jesus Christ that was accomplished for us. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus On the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. One of the most important words that Christ speaks and that Paul reminds us of is these six words, Do this. In remembrance of me. You see, the Lord Jesus understood the power of memory. And not just the power of memory, but the power of remembering the right things. Do you remember where the Lord Jesus gave this particular ordinance to the church? Do you remember what was going on at that time? Yes, we know it was the night before he was crucified. But what was going on in the greater Jewish context at that time? It was known as the Feast of the Passover. And you see, whenever God would do a great work in His people, they would often commemorate God's work with a feast or a festival, with a yearly ritual which would serve as a regular reminder to God's people not only about the great deeds which God had accomplished, but about God's faithfulness and God's mercy and God's provision. And so for thousands of years, the Jews had gathered together to celebrate this feast called Passover. And in that feast, they would have certain food elements that they would partake of every single year at the Feast of the Passover. The Feast of the Passover was commanded by God in Exodus chapter 13. And God instituted it and commanded it to be a reminder to the Israelites for all generations about how God had led His people out of bondage in Egypt through Moses. If you remember your stories from the book of Exodus, you'll remember that there were ten plagues, and in the final plague of those ten plagues, God sent a death angel to kill the firstborn of every living creature in the land of Egypt. And yet, in the midst of His mercy, God allowed a provision... For the firstborn of a house to live, if someone in that house would kill a lamb and take the blood of the lamb and put it over the doorpost of that home. And if they did, when the death angel came to that home, the death angel would see the blood of the lamb and pass over that home showing mercy rather than judgment. And God gives them this feast to remember every single year when they would take a lamb and they would, they would slay that lamb and they would roast that lamb and they would eat of that lamb. And every single year they would celebrate this feast to remember the night that God's death angel passed over them. And each year for thousands of years, the Jews celebrated Passover and looked back at God's mercy and grace that was shown And as they did, they were also looking forward to another lamb, a spotless lamb of God which would take away the sins of the world. And so it is completely fitting that it's in this moment that Jesus transforms the Passover feast into a remembrance of him that would be celebrated by the church for all time. You see, Jesus was the fulfillment of the Passover promise. And he led his people not only out of Bondage, not just a physical bondage, but a greater spiritual bondage. And so when we come together to celebrate this feast, we're doing exactly what the people of God have done for thousands of years. And we will take elements very similar to what Jesus and his disciples did over 2,000 years ago. We will take bread, which symbolizes the broken body of our Lord Jesus, and we will take juice, which represents the blood of Jesus Christ that was poured out for the remission of Of our sins. And when we come to this table and take these elements, we do so because they remind us of the finished work of Jesus Christ, which has been accomplished for us. You see, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper is probably one of the most critical things we do as a church because all of us face the danger of what I like to call gospel amnesia. Gospel amnesia doesn't mean that we forget the facts of the gospel like the fact that Jesus died on the cross or that he rose again. Gospel amnesia is that we would remember the facts of the gospel but forget why we need it in the first place. Gospel amnesia means that we would remember all the facts about what Jesus did but forget the power of the gospel and forget the fact that each day we need the gospel because each day we go into a world of sin and brokenness. And each day we go in there as sinners. Paul writes to the church in Corinth in just a few chapters, in chapter 15, and says, I would remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved. Paul has to remind them again of the gospel. And the reason why we celebrate the Lord's Supper is because it reminds us of the finished work of Jesus Christ that has been accomplished for us. Another reason why we celebrate the Lord's Supper is because it calls us to the critical work of spiritual self-examination. It calls us to the critical work of spiritual self-examination. In verses 27 through 31, Paul says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. When I read those as a new Christian, it scared me to death. Because I didn't know what that meant. Paul then says in verse 28, For that reason, let a person examine himself. And then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Paul warns them in just a few verses that because of the callous way in which these believers treated not only the agape feast, but also the Lord's Supper, which was part of it, that they have treated this critical ordinance with contempt and they have taken the elements of, of, the, of this feast in an unworthy manner. And because of that, there were things that were happening within the church. There were people who were sick. There were people who had evidently died because, because they had not taken this particular thing very serious. Church, this is a holy moment. Whenever the church of the living Lord Jesus gathers around this table. And far too often I think we have this tendency to engage in our spiritual life on autopilot. We go to church, we read our Bible, we go to small group, we serve in our respective areas in the church, and we come to corporate worship because it's what we've always done. And there's something very good about routine, but there's also something very dangerous about it. That's why Paul says... Before we are to partake of this feast, we are to examine ourselves, and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I was talking to the group that prays with me this morning. I, I used to read this, where Paul talks about eating the bread and drinking of the of the cup in an unworthy manner, and then saying, "Let us examine himself." And I would often stop before communion and I would examine myself in such a way to say, am I worthy to actually partake of this today? Am I worthy, God, to receive this? But then I began to realize that, that if we ask that question, the reality of it is is not, not one of us in here today is worthy of being able to take the elements of this. There's not one person in this place right now that is worthy of the bread and the wine that you are about to take which symbolizes the broken body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's not one person in this place that's worthy of that sacrifice. So when he's saying that we are to examine ourselves, it's not to examine our worth and say, am I worthy to do that? It's to examine ourselves to see what is it that's causing us to possibly receive these things sometimes in an unworthy manner. So here's some reflective questions that you can ask yourself to take a spiritual inventory as these elements are passed in just a second. As you receive them, ask yourself this, is there some unconfessed sin in my life that I have not properly dealt with? Is there something buried in your heart that you've never confessed to the Holy Spirit, never confessed to the Lord? Is there a brother or sister in Christ with whom I have unresolved conflict with? The Bible tells us that before we come and offer our gift of worship, we're to be reconciled to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so perhaps you have a brother or sister in Christ with whom you have a, a, an offense or, a, or an unresolved conflict that you need to deal with. Is there some idol of my heart that is taking away my affection for Jesus? Is there something in my life which has taken a, a place of an idol that's taken more importance that gets more worth and value? from my heart than the Lord Jesus does? Are there misplaced priorities in my daily life? Are there things that I go through in my daily routine that are misplaced that shouldn't be a priority? Is my life expressing a living faith in the Lord Jesus or am I exhibiting a passive dead faith? Have I expressed appropriate gratitude today to the Lord Jesus for His blessings? Am I demonstrating to others a love for God and a love for them? And so in just a few moments, as these elements are passed your way, I invite you to take some time to do some careful self-examination of your heart and where you stand with the Lord Jesus. Confess sin if God reveals sin to you. Give thanks to God for His unfailing mercies. Resolve to repent and change of some sinful habits. But take some time once you receive these elements to just pray and examine yourself. So we need this Lord's Supper because it calls us to the critical work of spiritual self-examination. But finally, we need this supper because it propels us to respond with worship and witness. It propels us to respond with worship and witness. Paul says in verse 26, one of my favorite parts of this passage is, Often, church, as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul reminds us that this act of communion is more than just a personal religious act. It's more than just going through the spiritual motions. We say something as the people of God every time we gather around the Lord's table. We are proclaiming something here. Paul says we proclaim the Lord's death. What does that mean? That means that when the church, corporate church gathers together to take this feast, we do so as an act of Christian gospel proclamation. And so in just a moment, when we take this cup and we take this juice, what we are saying and what we are proclaiming is that Jesus' body was broken under the weight of our sins. And Jesus' blood was poured out as a remission of our sinful ways. It may seem like we just pass out some fancy silver trays with plastic cups of juice and wafers, but it's much deeper than that. We are passing to one another, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. We are serving to one another the gospel. And we are proclaiming the gospel to one another as we pass these trays and as we eat this together. And we are declaring to a lost world that does not know our Jesus, that our God is the one true living God, and that by His body and by His blood alone can our sins be forgiven and can we be made right with Him. So what happens whenever our hearts are enlarged with the gospel? We respond with worship and witness. We respond with worship, giving God glory and worth and value and honor for what He has done and who He is. And we respond by proclaiming to the world the greatness of our God. And so one of the reasons why we need this feast is because it reminds us of what Christ has done for us that then propels us to worship Him rightly, and to tell others about him. Just a moment, our deacons, they can go ahead and make their way to the back. They're going to be heading down here in just a second to begin to serve us the the elements of communion. And we're going to take this before we have our hymn of invitation today. So in just a few moments, these gentlemen are going to come and they're going to take these trays and they're going to begin to pass them across the aisles. And when they do, you're going to receive a tray that has a cracker. You're going to receive a tray that has a cup with some juice in it. We're going to ask you, when those traits come by, to take those elements and, and just to begin to, to do exactly what the scriptures say a second ago, to, to examine yourself, to pray, to examine your heart, to see if there's unconfessed sin that you need to confess to the Lord, to see if there's unresolved conflict that you need to deal with, to just take a few moments to, to pray and to express gratitude to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this feast is for those who've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so this is a feast that's reserved only for believers. If you're a person here today and you've never truly trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then then this feast is not for you. That's not to be mean or exclusive. It's to say that you can't worship someone that you don't know. And so in just a moment, if you say, you know what, I don't really know where I stand with the Lord Jesus, we're going to give you an opportunity to Come to know the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So maybe it would be best for you just to let these things pass by if that's the case. But whatever the case, in just a moment we're going to receive these. I'm going to read the scripture for you again. We'll take those and then we will respond with a song of invitation before we leave today. Gentlemen, would you come and help me serve the Lord's Supper today? We read these verses a second ago, but let's do this again. Scripture says, I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, please receive body and blood of our Lord Jesus. In proclaiming the Lord's death, one of the things that we do as a response to that is that we worship the Lord. So we're going to have an opportunity to sing a hymn of invitation together. And as we do, we also want to extend an opportunity for someone here today who maybe has never received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe today you've recognized that through through this instruction on the Lord's Supper. God has, has demonstrated to you or made you aware of the fact of your need for a Savior. And so in just a moment as we sing, we don't want to just do this as something that we do so that we can get on out of here, but we want to give you an opportunity If you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can do that today. So would you bow with me, and then we're going to sing this hymn of invitation. Father in heaven, we ask you, Father, not only to to help us to to celebrate the Lord Jesus through this act of communion, but we also ask, Lord, that you would save those of us who, who need to be saved from our sins today. So Father in heaven, as we stand and as we sing this song of response, we ask that you would be Honored in all that we say and do. And Father, if anyone here needs to know you as our Lord, would you call them to you today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand please.